You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. And the draw was made for Paris Saint-Germain against Manchester United in the Champions League all the way back in December or whenever it was. It didn't look like it was going to be one of those games that would really whet the appetite. You kind of thought that, mm, this we kind of know exactly what's going to happen. This is going to be one-way traffic, there'll be a scratchy goal, there'll be a good second, and it'll be 2-0 and maybe it'll be a draw in the second leg, or maybe, just maybe, they'll kill them. Now, all of a sudden, on the show last night, Pat Nevin said, with a straight face, that he makes Manchester United the favourites for the Paris Saint-Germain tie. Things change in two months, and all of a sudden, the whole world is interested, Owen. Yeah, it's, it's straight faces everywhere this morning, predicting Manchester United to have a, one hell of a chance of beating Paris Saint-Germain. They're going to beat them. They're going to progress. The, 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 there, there are some headlines in Durant saying that uh, the absence of Neymar and Edison Cavani may have an impact on Paris Saint-Germain. I don't Maybe. care how, you good, or how good you are or how much money you've got to spend. You are going to be impacted by the absence of uh, Edison Cavani and Neymar, who are both out tonight. Manchester United have the upper hand here. It's not like PSG have been playing in any uh, great flair or form uh, since the turn of the calendar year either. They've struggled in a couple of matches domestically. Uh, and I think, did they kind of forget how to get themselves back up to the high octane of top-level football again? It's hard to be a big-time Charlie all the time. Exactly. Did it, like, I think they've kind of got themselves to a point where they know they can be leisurely about most of their business for most of the year, and then they just turn it on whenever they need to. But sometimes turning it on when you need to is actually quite a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Uh, who's going to go through, though? That's the question. You're saying Manchester United are going to go through over the two legs. I think so. I think so. Well, Neymar is not going to be back for the second leg, is he? But is Neymar all that important when you've got Kylian Mbappe on the team? Yeah. Come on. Well, the- Kylian Mbappe. So that's the whole point of having a super team or having uh, a sensational front three. Exactly. If one of them goes down, you've still got another amazing player like Kylian Mbappe, best player in the world. Or really. if you've got you know, a limited amount of resources on the pitch, which every football team does then you can't uh, actually spread your resources too thinly, or you can't spread them too thickly, I should say, in terms of focusing in on uh, attacking targets. Of course it's going to make a difference. The, uh, like we, we spoke about the theory that perhaps PSG are better without Neymar. That theory will be tested over the next couple of weeks because they're coming up against one of the most informed sides in Europe. I, I'm reading this morning that Manchester United players are overperforming over the last couple of weeks. I don't believe that to be the case. I believe that their attacking assets have just found their actual level. Mm, their defence has played relatively well in recent weeks and okay so defensively maybe that is overperforming because they don't have no great players there yeah okay I, I'll give you that defensively they are, they are overperforming but in attack there's no overperformance there like when people are comparing Mbappe against Marcus Rashford as two of the hottest young talents in European football tonight that's not really hyperbole that's quite accurate yeah I mean right Yes. Like, there's no suggestion that Marcus Rashford, for me, is overperforming at the moment. No, but there's not also, he's nowhere near killing Mbappe, really. Yet. I mean, killing Mbappe is a World Cup winner. Yes. He, Marcus he, Rashford like, is good and could be great, but that's where he is at the moment. Like, it could also, it's unlikely, but it could also end up a little bit Federico Makeda. I mean, probably won't because he's far, much further down the line, but we've seen players play well for a short period of time at the start of their career. He looks much better than that, in fairness, before that. Yeah, gets blown up and is like, Ugh. he's not really Makeda because Makeda obviously never made it. But um, we have seen players come through and fade away a little bit, or something gets them. This, that's but you see, he's had that already, hasn't he? Proper second contract. Well, he survived Mourinho, which is like amazing. Look, I, I don't want to, 
uh, by comparing him to Mbappe, I think you're doing him a disservice because Kylian Mbappe is like top three in the world type player. I don't think Rashford's that type player, is he? Marcus Rashford's going to be a good Premier League player, but right. not like a world-class player, is he? It's true, it's true. Like, especially when you look at Mbappe, who was deserving of all the praise he got last year in terms of all the individual accolades he picked up last year, and Marcus Rashford can never be put into that situation. Namely, like, like specifically because of what, he, what happened with his club, specifically what, ha- what happened in the World Cup. He just didn't have as good a World Cup as, uh, as Kylian Mbappe, simple as that. But when you look at the actual talents available to either man, of course, Mbappe is an athlete who's probably a good bit better than Marcus Rashford. As a lethal finisher, as somebody who can actually rack up statistics that often yeah. gauge these uh, year-long awards, can Marcus Rashford get to that level? I think the potential 100% is there. Well, so he's only 21. I mean, there's, I, I, if you were to... Mbappe's only 20. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of where Rashford can go, what his ceiling is. Like, is his ceiling an Ole Gunnar Solskjaer-type career where, you know, you become an important part of a successful team as opposed to the main man? Or is he going to have, like, an Andy Cole-style period of his career where he is the main man who scores loads and loads of goals or a Van Nistelrooy season where his goals carry the team to a title or a Van Persie season where the same thing happens. I mean, he's kind of in between, I would say. That's stylistically. No, 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 irrespective of stylistically, but his ability to kind of contribute to the team and be a dominant player in the team um, in terms of outcome, right? Okay. Uh, I would say he's kind of in between Solskjaer and uh, Van Persie, Van Nistelrooy. which is an amazing career, but it ain't killing Mbappe, who's no. like a step ahead of all those. I can see your, I can see your concern, for sure, and I, I can see how you can easily make that comparison. But I do think that there is a, an element of style about that. The only thing that can stop Marcus Rashford going on to have uh, a Van Persie or a Van Nistelrooy type season in the next two or three years is a, a change in style to whatever it may be, his position or the way he's asked to deploy himself in Manchester United's attack. At the moment, I think it's pretty clear that Marcus Rashford has been a revelation as a number nine for Manchester United, although revelation is probably putting it a little bit strongly because we all knew the attacking prowess he had. As a number nine, Marcus Rashford is world-class, potentially, no? I mean, like, world-class means he's in the best team in the world. It's a good point. So, like, if you're talking about uh, the best team in the world right now, and you can't put Ronaldo, Messi, or Mbappe into that number nine role centrally, that they have to play either side of that. Like, if, if, you, if you're just going to play Ronaldo, Messi, and Mbappe as your front three, then of course Marcus Rashford is, is not world class if we're going to use those very stringent... Well, can Salah play there? Uh, if we're going to use those... Like, Salah plays there sometimes. He does, but is, is, does Salah beat Mbappe on that right, right of a three at the moment? Uh, no. So that's the thing, so you're pushing one into the inside. Yeah, I mean, come on, and I'm definitely not putting Rashford in that conversation at all. No, I wouldn't either, but I am also talking about potentially world-class here. Okay, okay. I am talking about the fact that as a number nine, this guy can be a goal scorer that can lead a Premier League title challenge. Okay, fair enough. So you rate him very, very, very highly. Very, 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 very highly. the same team as Kylian Mbappe on Potentially, yes. Okay, and I think that's that's, uh, a bit, I think we're a bit early for that. I've got to say. But anyway, that's a conversation we have a little bit later on. We've got um, some really good football guests coming your way at around about uh, 8.15 this morning. We're going to get the um, thoughts of uh, Philippe and uh, we're also going to talk with Daniel Harris. That's coming up at 8.15. I'm going to hear from Ian Rush and Jason McAteer. Uh, Liverpool and the FAI have got together. And it's, I mean, it took a little bit of a while for them to get a Sean Cox fundraiser going, but eventually they got there. Yeah, and not uh, the FAI, by the way, but Liverpool. I think. I mean, I think the FAI have um, done really well to get involved as quickly as they have done. Yeah, for sure. It's on April twelfth, and uh, it was launched yesterday. So we've got a piece with Ian Rush and Jason McIntyre coming up a little bit later on. 
One of the other conversations that we want to have this morning, um, a bit about rugby, obviously, we're going to hear from uh, Travis Tiger, the second part of our interview about uh, Floyd Landis and Lance Armstrong. We're bringing the sports news to Darren around about 845. One of the other conversations we ha- have this morning is uh, about Sean O'Brien. We'll get to that in a minute, but I want to play you this clip because um, it is Brian O'Driscoll on last night's show talking about Joey Carberry's evolution. And uh, he's got an interesting comparison, one that we've been talking about in the show here for a while. Have a look. It's twice now this season, uh, after the Castro game away from Munster when he had not a great game, he rebounded brilliantly and then he had to regather himself a whole lot more quickly on Saturday. I would think his head uh, was spinning and his stomach was churning and he felt horrific for those 60 seconds after that intercept pass. Yeah, I, I think it wasn't even, the, even that only. His first pass was quite nervy. You know, he's a very good passer of the ball. It. The very first one he threw was a little bit low. I think Farrell caught it and it was fine. Okay. But just it looked as though a little, it was a little bit tentative, a guy that was, yeah, was nervous. And it's understandably still a young man. Mm. And it's a you know, big situation to find himself thrown in. Also, you're replacing the World Player of the Year. You know, there's, there's added pressure that comes with that. Mm. Yes, he's been very good for Munster, but... Now there's, there's you know, constant question marks. Is he the one to challenge Johnny in advance of the World Cup? And this is, for him, is his opportunity. So, of course, there's going to be excitement and nerves and everything that comes with that. Um, so the first one was a bit edgy and you know, brilliantly read the intercept pass. But the way he bounced back from that, and I think it was a multitude of different parts to his game. It was... Um, Obviously, you know, besides the line break in the past, Earls was, you know, was fantastic. And he, he has this ability, like no other 10, to get himself out of trouble or use his feet to just create something where he's running down a dark alley and all of a sudden it's turning you know, what could be a miserable situation into a brilliant attacking opportunity. And very few 10s have the scope of doing that because of his acceleration, because of his footwork. I don't even think... I was talking to Johnny Wilkinson about this yesterday. You know, I don't even know if Bowden Barrett... Ha- he doesn't have that footwork. He's got that crazy acceleration, mm. but he doesn't have that back three footwork where you know, Shane Williams, you're backed into a corner and through multiple steps you're able to get yourself out of, out of trouble in a phone box, whereas um, he has that. And I think there's a looseness to his game, but, there's th- but that brings such a great excitement. He's, he's quite a different player to Johnny. Johnny's a bit more strategic and a bit more formulaic and particularly the older he gets, and he's just lost a yard of pace as well. Whereas Joey comes in and he's almost the antithesis of that. He mm. just comes in and he's a, he's sparked to life and maybe doesn't run the pattern system as well as Johnny does right now, but he brings something totally different and, and something equally as as exciting. And is there any possibility to get the two of them in the same team? Could we, I mean, it'd be nice to see that, wouldn't it? Mm. One of them playing fullback. Well, obviously, only one of them will play fullback. And only one of them will play in the centre, perhaps. But, like, it's not going to happen now, is it? No, but it is. It, it is an interesting France game. You can experiment for the France game now. Like France are rubbish. They can put out a B team against France and beat them. For sure. I think the way the fixtures have worked out for Ireland in this year's Six Nations, it's the worst possible situation. We've got Italy in the middle of two off weeks. We wanted, to, we wanted our toughest game really coming up next uh, to have, like, a week rest going into it and a week rest coming out of it. But, yeah, France is probably now the best opportunity to experiment in, a, in quite a strange way because you don't want people to go rusty either with these next three weeks and the only game we have is Italy. But just on what Brian O'Driscoll is saying there, I'd love to know Joe Schmidt's thoughts on that. That So you've got... If, you, if, you're, if you're ranking your... Uh, your your half at the moment, it's clearly number one Johnny Sexton, number two Joey Carberry. But as he says there, Carberry brings something completely different off the bench. I, I do wonder, could that possibly go against Joey Carberry? That if a game plan is going really well 
and Johnny Sexton gets a knock, do you want your out half to come in and just be Johnny Sexton? Or you do you think a chance somebody supplants Carberry's number two? No chance. No, 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 that's not what I'm suggesting at all. I'm suggesting that do you want your replacement for Johnny Sexton to be more like Johnny Sexton than Joey Carberry is? Yeah, so you're saying... They're li- are, are they too different? As in, so Carberry's talent is going against him as number two? As a backup out-half, that it would actually support the idea of him at full-back. Oh, I don't really understand. What are you making? Or maybe I am suggesting that he shouldn't be number two uh, out-half. Like, the, the point he's making there is their talents are quite different. And so who would be the number two? Well, I don't know. That's that is the question, isn't it? It's like Carby's our second best at half. And like he is, he is one hundred percent. But it's like, does does it go against him that his talents are very different to uh, to Johnny Sexton? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you wonder if in any other country he'd be in the first fifteen somewhere. That like you'd be finding a way for him to be in the first fifteen, whatever the formation is. However, you need to manage whatever it is that you need to manage. This guy's like. This guy is definitely potentially world-class and you want him in the team. And, you know, who knows, by the end of the year we could all be saying he is world-class now. Let's uh, take you to the newspapers this morning. Solskjaer and United looking to rekindle great European nights. That's uh, all these cold assassin eyes. He's such a happy manager, isn't he? Kind of the perfect Manchester United manager at the moment, in a weird way. You can write whatever you want onto him because... He's been so low profile, really, apart from that time at Cardiff. And nobody paid any attention to that time at Cardiff because it was Cardiff and they were going straight back down. So no one cared. So whatever happens now, this is the birth of his character in many respects as, a, as an adult. Again, because, you know, he was the baby-faced assassin and then he disappears and he goes off to Norway or he's in the background at Manchester United. So he can be whatever he wants. Well, we're forgetting the elephant in the room here, and that is that Neil Warnock may do what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer failed to do, which is keep Cardiff in the Premier League. Is he now more deserving of the Manchester United job at some point down the, the line? Like it's, it's not a great example of a person who uh, had a very, very tough time at a football club and has clearly learned a lot from it. And there was a lot of judgment over Solskjaer because of what happened at Cardiff City, which a lot of which wasn't down to him. There was a, a lot of failure behind the scenes that contributed to their downfall at the time. So he's clearly picked up lessons from that. He was, he was brilliant, wasn't he, at the, the end of his stint with Mulder as well. He brought form into it. He was helped, I think, by the fact that Mulder actually lost their first game in ages after he left. So I, I'm, I'm not sure how big a, a factor that was in Manchester United actually picking him up at the time. But he's on a pretty purple patch at the moment when it comes to uh, his managerial career in both clubs. And uh, like it's, it's not going to end anytime soon. He's the frontrunner. Ashley Young has signed a new one-year deal at... Uh Man United as well. That's a not, like that's he's putting out a good Man United career, Ashley Young, for somebody who you know. Uh, you say that as if he doesn't uh, have. You say, you say that as if he's overachieved. Well, he got a lot of um, flack, right? There's like a little bit of butter or something on the Irish Times this morning. It's always a, it's a nice thing to have in the papers. There you go, uh, slogging away with 60 days to go for 60 minutes of football. Um, it's crazy. And I think it has to change, says veteran Carfin defender Fitzgerald. So this is the talk of the uh, seasons for the clubs not being much fun, basically. Um, and then the Sean O'Brien loss, uh, Stuart Lancaster was out yesterday facing the media, um, talking about the loss of Sean O'Brien, basically saying that once he, O'Brien wasn't offered an international contract by the IRFU, the matter effectively is out of Leinster's hands at that point because anybody can come in and make Sean O'Brien the type of... Um, offer that London Irish have made. Uh, it did start a conversation um, around the office about the greatest ever Leinster players in the professional era. 
So let's just limit this to the professional era. Obviously, Brian O'Driscoll's right there. Sexton has to be right there. Leo Cullen, as a Leinster career, is going to end up being talked about as like an icon of Leinster rugby because of what he's done um, both as a player and as a coach. Um, Sean O'Brien is right there in any conversation in terms of like impact and uh, the love of the fans. And then, I don't know, after that, who else have you got? You've got Issa, obviously, he's going to say we're the best um, foreign player that ever joined the club. The, uh, he's the one case in world sport that I ever remember disproving that, oh, don't go back thing, because he went back and was just as good. And um, ends up kicking, plenty of other cases, obviously. Up, there aren't, really. Ends up kicking the winner in the European Cup final. Most people go back and they're a failure. Um, and... Did Rocky Elson sneak in? He does, just for the fact that they might not have ever got over the line for the first time if it hadn't been for Rocky, who apparently didn't train and only played games and was always around in the match. <laughs> just yeah, um, adding a little bit extra to his legend. Yeah, like <clears throat> Sean O'Brien is probably going to go down as uh, the best Leinster player that is going to be viewed as a cult hero almost. When he's so much better than a cult hero, he is a Leinster icon, really. Yeah. Although, I was just looking at it this morning, who, who do you think has got the most uh, Leinster appearances of all time? You probably noticed, do you? The most ever. Yeah. But according to their website. Uh, still playing? Recently retired. In the, in the last five years. For Leinster club matches? It, it's just Leinster. It's like 250-odd appearances. It's Gordon Darcy. Um, and then, like, not, not too far below him is actually Jamie Heaslip, who I thought, I thought his injury profile would have actually stopped him from being uh, in the top few appearances. He actually has the second most appearances. So Gordon Darcy is 257. Uh, Heaslip is 229. Devin Toner with 227. And then Cullen, fourth. Heaslip was never injured. The, oh, it's true. It was just at the end, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was just at the end when he was, uh, which eventually derailed things. So, like, the question is, if you could have one back row in your uh, Leinster icon list are you picking Heaslip or are you picking Sean O'Brien it's a good, it's a good tricky question but um, yeah well, you can give us your answers hashtag O2BAM am I bothered Solskjaer doesn't fear money bags PSG um, yeah he's the perfect Man United manager right uh, Mike Quirk the journey from Strand Road to Austin Stack Park that's his uh, piece today um, again brilliant analysis from Mike Quirk on off the ball last night about the uh, Kerry Dublin game and uh, Niall Quinn, good piece here, denying that he's trying to do a hatchet job on the FAI um, at a Virgin Media uh, launch yesterday. Uh, the Irish Independent, their lead this morning. British Racing to get back on track. Oh, there's a difference there. Headline there. Marshall, it's payback time for Ole. United Strike wants PSG scalp to reward Solskjaer's switch to more attacking style. So that was the press conference yesterday. Then obviously overnight uh, or later yesterday evening, four meetings planned and risk managed return with missed marquee races rescheduled for the weekend. So British Racing getting back on track after the equine flu outbreak. And it looks like uh, referee Mars Deegan's report isn't going to say anything about the, um, the renaissance art that the two teams served up by way of a brawl in the aftermath. It wasn't a brawl, really. Whatever. Schmazzle. Schmazzle, correct. Uh, O'Brien is one of the greats, says Lancaster. He's dead right. 122 caps for Leinster. How many did you say Darcy had? 257. Wow, twice as many. That's mad, isn't it? That's what I mean. It's like... It's hard to, it's hard to kind of quantify impact per game. But if you could, Sean O'Brien would be number one. Uh, sorry demands total overhaul. That's like... Um, good luck with that. 
I mean, if, if he pulls it off from here, having had those back-to-back defeats that they've just come through, and he stays in the job and he manages to get rid of everybody, it is one of the great Houdini acts of all time since, actually, Harry Houdini. <laughs> uh, it really is. Since, since the Houdini himself. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't even need to do anything. All he needs to do is just not get sacked, and it would be a remarkable act of uh, escapology. It's, uh, <laughs> it's hilarious at this point. He, he's kind of like begging to be sacked, Maybe Roman Abramovich just doesn't know what's going on. Maybe he's just not watching Chelsea anymore. Maybe he kind of forgot that Chelsea Football Club exists and it's just happening there and decided. It's like you're a fiver down the back of a couch. Exactly. Oh, Chelsea, I forgot about you. No, nice one. His Lampard's like, what? Where's Lampard? That kind of stuff. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Nicky Henderson, one thing's for certain, we have to start racing again on Wednesday and uh, he's going to get his way. Ireland lift suspension on runners from Britain. So, uh, yeah, it looks like the equine flu outbreak uh, story is coming to an end. Back page of the Irish Daily Mail this morning is O'Brien exiles. Flanker's exit is disappointing for Lancaster, while Aaron Ramsey hits £83 million jackpot with Juve move. He's going to get four hundred grand a week with the Italian Giants when he joins them. Back page of the Herald is, we're going to go for PSG, says Ole. Martial also in the media. He says United Swagger under Solskjaer can beat Paris. And McAteer uh, has been on the record saying Premier League is holy grail for the Reds. Back page of the Sun is 400k a week. Aaron signs mega deal with Juve. Uh, oh, and Roman Abramovich has not forgotten about Chelsea because Sarri is to talk with Roman. He's been told he's free to discuss Chelsea's crisis ah. with Abramovich whenever he wants. So Sarri is. Yeah. Just picked up a call and it's like, whenever you want to talk about anything, Rizzio, I'm right here for you. No, well, I mean, so what? You're, in, you're in sixth. <laughs> uh, so Gabriele Mercati uh, tweeted that it's not 400 grand a week. Um, it's actually 7.5 million net, which works out at 250 grand a week. Uh, 250 grand a week sounds a hell of a lot more plausible, if still rather high. So perhaps with bonuses, if they like win the Champions League, that would nearly double it. So that'd be a lot of money, wouldn't it? A huge amount of money, but they're so Big. desperate to get that. So I'm sure they'd be willing to shell out 500k a week on Aaron Ramsey if it meant they got to the Champions League. But hang on, sorry, Champions sorry, League. sorry, sorry. Hang on a second. 7.5 million net, right? Let me just do these quick maths. Yeah, cancel. Okay, seven, five, one, two, three. Oh, that's a lot of zeros, isn't it? That's a lot of zeros. <laughs> divided by sixty, multiplied by a hundred, equals twelve point five million. Divided by fifty-two equals. It is only two hundred fifty. That can't be right, is it? You've really been put back in your place there, haven't you? Yeah. Is your calculator lying to you? Do you think? No. So at, at a forty percent tax rate, seven point five million networks at around two hundred fifty grand a week gross. It's bloody uh, Italian taxmen taking all of poor Aaron Ramsey's money. Uh, back page of the Irish Daily Star this morning is Beware of the Pog. Martial says stage is set for Paul Pogba. We've also got Ian Rush there talking about Manchester City and Liverpool. He says City's fixture list may hurt them. And uh, Green Life for racing there as well on the back page of the Star. It's uh, Manchester United as well on the back of the mirror. Good Ole days. Solskjaer believes United can go all the way in Champions League like when he got the winner. And Sarri's facing more pressure over snub for Hudson Adoya. Uh, Hudson Adoya, I should say, on the back page of the mirror as well. And you've also got another Arsenal exclusive here by John Cross, saying that Mesedozo's relationship with Arsenal has reached breaking point after his latest cry-off. And then a couple of other back pages for you. The Guardian goes with uh, Jaden Sancho here. It hasn't been easy. I've had to work for this. As he returns to London to face Spurs tomorrow, Jaden Sancho describes his journey from playground to prince of the Bundesliga. And finally then, the front page of the Daily Telegraph sports section is Captain Root hits century at a third test there. And uh, Sarri given just two weeks to save his job. Chelsea's beleaguered coach faces desperate fight to avoid Abramovich axe. 
two weeks is much longer than we thought we were going to be given, right? Fair play, he's done well, the lad, keeping his job for those two weeks. What's he going to do for those two weeks when he knows, like, it's kind of like death row. I wonder, do Chelsea managers get given a death row meal? Yeah, like, like you know, caviar and finest champagne, whatever you want, because it's like, well, in fairness, they are trying to uh, screw Antonio Conte out of his money, right? But, see, that's still going on at the moment. I wonder, can they just not focus on two things at once and... Like if they managed to get into another dispute with another manager, that would really be a juggling act. They've united Mamo in the Cup and City. It's like not a great League Cup final. No. What if they get beaten 6-0 in the League Cup final? And then Spurs after that. You, what, you can't no point second them now, right? Because whoever comes in is going to be like, jeez, we've got Spurs, you know? Give it, give it to... What would... Like, does the success of Solskjaer mean that you can bring Lampard in now? No. Why not? I, th- I just I, I think this it's the success of Solskjaer. Uh, did they have to thank the Manchester United hierarchy a little bit there, in terms of the fact that they seem far more receptive to criticism than anybody in the Chelsea hierarchy is? Like Roman Abramovich, like granted, <laughs> you look at uh, the Glazer family and their ownership of Manchester United has been fairly staunch as well, and it's been fairly bulletproof to criticism. But is Roman Abramovich just on a different level altogether? Where? The manager is literally just a pawn. Like, how much of an influence do, do outside influences? I'm not talking about Abramovich here, but outside influences that aren't a manager have on on that dressing room. I just suspect I, that if you sure. were to put somebody like Lampard in, who has the faith of Abramovich from before, does that change things? It maybe it does. But if you look at it from Frank Lampard's perspective, when you are plaster at Chelsea, you really are just a plaster. You will be gone at the end of the season. We've seen that happen a couple of times before. But maybe not, Lampard's reputation protects him. Yeah, not a, not a club hero, not a club legend. Yeah, that's true. Like with Solskjaer, there's definitely the sense that the way Manchester United are set up. and yeah, That's screwed. He was a club legend. But then, I don't know how the hell that happened that he won the league in the first place. So. Yeah. Second time. Like, the, the good news for Mauricio Sarri is that he's lasted longer than Luis Felipe Scolari. So he's not the worst Chelsea manager in the Abramovich era, if you judge him by kind of length of time that's it's taken for them to get sacked. And of course, our friend Andre Villas-Boas. He's not quite as I think Andre Villas-Boas lasted a little bit longer. I think he got did he get to the end of February? I'm open to correction on that. But uh, Scalari and Villas-Boas are the two shorter serving uh, Chelsea managers from the start of the season. We should get Andre back on to explain to us what that whole process was like. We should do. We should do. If, if he manages to hold on, if he manages to bump up to third shorter serving Abramovich manager, then uh, we'll get him on. OK, we are going to preview tonight's Champions League title at Manchester United and Paris Saint-Germain in just a moment in the company of Daniel Harris and Philippe Auclair. First, though, we're bringing you a chat with the former Liverpool stars Jason McAteer and Ian Rush. The lads were in Dublin yesterday to officially launch the Sean Cox charity match in the Aviva Stadium on Friday the 12th of April, so that's obviously over the um, Easter weekend. Uh, the Liverpool legends are facing an Irish 11 in a bid to raise money to fund vital rehabilitation care for Sean Cox, who suffered life-changing injuries when he was the victim of an unprovoked attack outside Anfield ahead of the Champions League semi-final against AS Roma last April. Friday, April the 12th, it is the Irish Legends 11 versus the Liverpool Legends 11. It is in aid of the Sean Cox Rehabilitation Trust. And as you can see, Jason McIntyre and Ian Rush are with me. Lads, how are things? Good, yeah, really good. good. Uh, lads, I guess we'll start with the match and with the Rehabilitation Trust. And Ian, I guess what we've seen over the last couple of months is just the unbelievable power and support of the footballing community off the pitch. Yeah, I think that's what it's all about. I think really uh, 
we all know uh, Liverpool, the, the supporters, uh, they're massive worldwide. You know, and uh, when you come to Ireland, uh, you feel like you're in Liverpool. There's that many Liverpool supporters here. <clears throat> but um, for something like this, uh, we all stick together. We all get together. And like like the, f- the famous saying, you know, you'll never walk alone. And when you get a situation like this, um, we've all got to muck in and do our, do our work and help Sean's rehabilitation. Yeah, for sure. It is a football club, like a lot of other football clubs, but particularly with Liverpool that has that community spirit, Jason, isn't it? It is, yeah, and obviously the the Irish support as well. You know, with the club steeped in Irish history, we've had some big, big players through the years who played both for Ireland and for Liverpool. And you know, it's a very, very, it's very, very close, isn't it? Ireland and Liverpool. So there's a lot of Irish living in Liverpool, and every opportunity a scouser can come to, to Dublin, they they take it, don't they? So yeah, I mean, and like Rushy said, it it's not just around the world. You know, that the fans here are, are amazing. We've got so many of them. So it, it's great that we can we can come here and put like something like this on. It really is a sort of pilgrimage setup, isn't it, for a lot of Irish football fans? Like we were talking to the office earlier on, one of the guys was over at the Bournemouth game at the weekend, and he just says the amount of Irish accents you can hear around Liverpool on match day is incredible. Oh, it is, it is, and you know, it's just testament to, to how big the club is, and you know, we haven't won the title for, for well, we haven't won the Premier League, haven't we? Uh, you know, hopefully we we can get over the line this year, but for the, the amount of fans that we've still got, and you know, like I said before, all over the world, the, the support is is phenomenal, but more so just well, sorry, just here, it's just incredible. Yeah, I'm sure the support network has always been incredibly tight. Has it got a little bit tighter, Ian, over the last couple of months since there's this very tangible thing on offer at the end of the season? Well, it's, uh, I think if you're a Liverpool supporter, I think you'd be very happy at the moment. You know, that's, that's what I want. And I think, uh, you know, the supporters will help the players get through it. You know, they, when they call the 12th man, we need supporters to be the 12th man. And uh, if we can do that, it's Liverpool's to lose. That's what I will say, because we've got a game in hand. So, uh, but I think you can't talk about winning title races at this time of year. You get into the final final month or so, and then I think it all kick in then. You know, there'll be a lot, lot of ups and downs you know, for Liverpool and Man City. But um, against our final month, and we're there, you know, I'd back the supporters to get us through it. Uh, Jason, we can see on the screen behind us, it's Republic of Ireland 11 versus Liverpool Legends 11. Which team are you playing for? I believe uh, Rushy's just told me I might not start for Liverpool, so I might just go and play for Ireland. Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to have a little run out for, for both if the, if the legs let me. Um, but you know, I've had a tremendous twelve years playing for playing for my country. It would be an honour to put that green jersey on again. But then the opportunity I get to play for Liverpool, that's an honour as well. So I get to do it for both. Well, the big question I think everybody has is: Michael Owen going to be playing, and are you going to be up against him again? I don't know if Michael, if Michael like, hasn't said yet, has he? Uh, I don't know. Hopefully he will. Like, you know, then we'll just get the boxing gloves out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait till I there, put the green jersey on, and then we can have it. <laughs> yeah. uh, Jason, I should get your take on what's happening on the pitch at the moment. I mean, when you were obviously playing for Liverpool, there was a much closer proximity to Ian's team. I'm sure that had a, a bit of a shadow over your team as well, a little bit, just in the background of a couple of years previous. But of course, that shadow gets greater as, as time goes by. I mean, yeah, the pressure to, to be to win things at Liverpool is phenomenal you know and that, that is down, down to like to rushes and the teams the generations before them that, that set the bar so high and to replicate that was extremely difficult you know we were always chasing Manchester United and you know a bit like everyone's trying to chase Manchester City down now and you know it's, it's a fantastic season we've had a great a great um, first half of the season obviously we've had a little wobble but it was a great performance and a great result at the weekend to get us back on track and um, just to emphasise what Rushy was saying before there's a lot of football to be played you know no titles won in February or March it's won in May and 
you know, both teams have got difficult games to come up. But what I would say, and, and again, what Rushy mentioned there, the fans were amazing at the weekend. I was at the game, I was at the Bournemouth game, and you know, the noise was turned up a notch, and the players responded, and that's what they're going to need to to get over the line. Yeah, and, and as a former Liverpool player, a former striker, you look at what Manchester City did yesterday and the unbelievable performances of Sergio Aguero at the moment. As a Liverpool player, would you be a little bit nervous about that? Oh, not really. I think uh, no, Aguero's great, but he's only got the same goals as Salah. <laughs> We've both got 17, so uh, you know that's that's what's all. Yeah, so we got to concentrate on Liverpool. You know, Man City have got an absolutely incredible squad, but do you get to the final month of the season? They could be in all the cups and everything, and they they won't be able to afford mm. to rest players in the game, league games. So we could come. We have to take it and use it to a positive and bring use that to our advantage. Absolutely, good stuff, lads. Just a final thought: Who's going to win it? One word: Who's going to win the Premier League? Liverpool. Liverpool. Good stuff, lads. Thank you very much for that. It is Friday, the April twelfth, right here in the Aviva Stadium. It's Irish legends against Liverpool legends in aid of the Sean Cox Rehabilitation Trust. Jason Ian, thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. All right, let's move on to tonight's game. The one that we're obviously focused on is Manchester United against Paris Saint-Germain. Roman Porto also go at it at 8 o'clock this evening. There are 8 o'clock kickoffs uh, this evening in the round of 16. Um, Daniel Harris and Philippe Auclair are with us. Daniel, I might start with you. The level of expectation that Manchester United had, fa- had and their fans had when the draw was made wouldn't have been that it was going to be um, in any way straightforward or easy, and maybe there would have been very low levels of confidence. The, the transformative nature of what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has done is becoming apparent by the fact that Man United fans can realistically hope that there is a, a good chance they can go through over these two legs. Uh, yeah, United, I guess, are under a bit of pressure now. Partly they're under pressure because they're playing quite well and partly they're under pressure because PSG have got players missing. I think even when the draw is made, when you look at the better teams, the favourites, PSG are the ones that you think, well, there's a chance against them because they don't do that well in these kind of games because uh, they're not test- perhaps because they're not tested enough in the French League, perhaps because they're not dealing that well with the pressure of the Champions League because the players are getting used to it, who knows. But um, United are now under a bit of pressure, but it's for Oli Solskjaer and the players to turn that into some kind of energy that- and confidence. Yeah, and I guess they should do. Um, what, what do you think is going to happen? How will they approach this game tonight? What, what level of nervousness will there be and how aggressive will they be from the get-go? Um, I think that the way that English teams often progress when they're, when they're drawn against sides like PSG is the way that it often works for them is that they're able to do something in the first half an hour, the first half of the tie, to get a lead. doesn't always work like that, but if I was Ole Solskjaer, that's what I'd be looking at United to do. I'd want a, a fast start on the front foot while PSG try and play themselves into the game because once PSG start to take over in midfield and um, PSG have a kind of midfield that is able to do that to United, um, United's midfield isn't really good enough to control the game, to control possession against a proper team. So with the way that the English clubs often compensate for what is not for what is a fairly common deficiency is by blowing the opponents away with the power and pace and energy in the first half an hour or so. So that's what I'd expect United to do. I'd expect them to try and look to get a PSG in wide areas because I think that's where there is a potential weakness and look to get bodies into the box early. And then if that doesn't happen, I wouldn't be more surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw PSG start to dictate the middle of the pitch and United look to catch them on the counter and through moments rather than through dominating the game. Yeah, Philippe, it's a, it's a fair point that Daniel makes about the way that PSG have been set up in recent seasons, but Thomas Tuchel has tried to change things just a little bit and to make them at least capable of playing on the counter-attack. Is, it, was that designed specifically for matches like tonight? Well, you would think so, but it must be said that any judgment that you make about what Thomas Tuchel has done with PSG is going to be slightly uh, changed because of the circumstances. 
And, and the thing is that you're not going to see anyway the PSG tonight that you would have expected to see normally because so many of the absolutely crucial players are missing out. Um, some have just got back in the, uh, the team, like uh, Verratti, who is absolutely essential. But you know, as I do, that Thomas Meunier is not in the team. Edinson Cavani has just got himself injured. And Neymar, of course, is absent for quite a long time. So, yes, they, they're a team which is very, very quick on the counter. Uh, they are a team which are, are able to, to cause problems to any uh, defense in normal circumstances. But at the moment, you're really wondering whether uh, Tuchel will ask um, his players to, to uh, try and, and, and do damage limitation rather than dam- do the damage themselves. And um, people are very, very worried, I must say, in Paris. OK, that's interesting. Because when the draw was made, I would have assumed there was a fair bit of confidence in Paris as well. So what is it specifically about this Manchester United team that's worrying them, though? Philippe. Yes, hello, sorry, I'm, I, I lost you for a second. Sorry, yeah. What is it, what is it about this Manchester United team that's worrying uh, Paris Saint-Germain? Because notwithstanding the fact that they have some injuries themselves, they should still have the confidence and swagger from... Oh, no. No, the confidence and the swagger haven't been there of late, and not just because of the injuries. Um, there was the, the game against Lyon, which they lost 2-1. There was a very difficult uh, game in the French Cup against the third-tier team, Villefranche, uh, the, which they won 3-0 in the end, but only after extra time and, and without proving anything. There was an absolutely appalling game. I can tell you, absolutely appalling game against Bordeaux, uh, in the last round of the French League, which they won 1-0, which is when Edinson Cavani um, injured himself. Uh, the performances haven't been very good at all. Uh, and y- you might say that maybe they shouldn't worry too much about that because it is, I think too often we exaggerate the impact of domestic form on Champions League form. And to be, very, to be proved very often that there's not much of an influence on one or the other. But... Uh, the swagger that they had certainly earlier in the, uh, on the se- in the season uh, is not there anymore. And you have to recognize that it is when a player is not there that you realize how good and how influential he is. And certainly since Neymar's injury, they haven't been the same side. So that swagger, the, 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 the incredible I mean, dominance that they have uh, over the Fran- over French football, uh, the decent performances they had in the Champions League, you can pretty much forget about them now. Uh, I'm not saying that you know, they're, they're coming to Manchester uh, to get a, a severe beating because there's still an awful lot of talent in that team. Uh, don't forget Angel Di Maria, for example, who is the player that Thomas Tuchel has called on the most this season, quite incredibly. And, of course, the fantastic Kylian Mbappe, uh, up front, uh, best goal scorer uh, in, in Liga. Uh, but you, they, they are coming with a diminished team and with doubt in the minds of some of the players and certainly in most of the supporters. Yeah, it really says something when you speak about the worry that can be instilled in this squad, despite the fact that they spent whatever it is, €400 million on actually bumping up the squad. It seems that they haven't left themselves with too much depth, Philippe. No, um, I mean, the thing, it's it's very difficult to to have any fair judgment uh, uh, over that particular team and particular club at the moment. The, The investment has been huge, as you've said, uh, but the investment has not necessarily been where it was needed the most. You will find, I think, this evening that one of the major areas of concern uh, for Paris uh, is the midfield. 
And the fact that you've got the, this Italian playmaker, uh, Regista, Massimo Verratti, who has only just come back to play in the team, has only got about an hour of football in his legs, uh, will be associated with somebody who is a central defender, Marquinhos, uh, in central of midfield. And it's a team that is at the moment completely unbalanced. And it will be even more unbalanced because of the absence of Thomas Meunier. I know I'm repeating myself, but uh, this is the Paris Saint-Germain that you'll have to contend with tonight. And it's going to be a real proof of whether Tuchel is as good a manager as people say he is, because he's going to have to invent. A bit like, you know, what, if I take an example in England, what Mauricio Pochettino has had to do um, when he's discovered that Harry Kane and Dele Alli were not available any longer, he's managed to change things around with success, and we're going to have exactly the same situation tonight with Thomas Tuchel and PSG. I did want to ask about um, who you think is going to play tonight for Manchester United, Daniel. Um, the performance at the weekend had the bang of the Ferguson era in that it was routine, a routine 3-0 away from home victory. Never really felt in doubt. They were clearly the, the better side. It, it was the inevitability of that result that was like, ooh, this is, this is new and interesting because it's been a while since we've seen Man United just be able to, no matter what the opposition is in the Premier League, perform that way. So was, was that team likely to um, be a, an indicator of who isn't playing tonight, given that certain players started who maybe won't start tonight? Um, it's not necessarily an indicator, but one thing that seems very clear that Solskjaer has done is he's got his first 11 more or less sorted in a way that Mourinho and Van Gaal never did in years. So the front three will be Rashford, Martial and Lingard. Um, and I think that's been crucial to what United have done. Players who can run fast, who are inventive, who are, much, who are hard to pin down. Then the midfield was, will be the same midfield that he went with against um, against Fulham, and actually, I think um, he learned from a cup from the game against Burnley that he doesn't have any real depth in midfield. So if he's going to make changes, it's quite hard to do it in that area of the pitch. So that will be Matic, Herrera, and Pogba. And the only real discussion that he has is who's going to play centre back next to Lindelof. I think that if Smalling had had more games, it would definitely be him. But because he's only had that one game against Fulham, it's actually, you can make a case for all of them. Jones has played the most under Solskjaer, so perhaps it will be him. Bailly has more upside than the other two, but also more downside than the other two. And he froze against Sevilla last season and also against Manchester City last season. So I don't really, I don't know who he's going to play at centre-back, but I think the rest of the team picks itself. And what I think United have got, what's really important for United is you were, in the way that you were just asking Philippe about the absence of Neymar, the thing about where if PSG could strengthen all they like, they could spend hundreds of millions of pounds on second-string players and they would still miss Neymar. Because if you have players of that quality, the reason they are players of that quality is because there's no one else who can compare to them. And that's the case with Neymar. And it's not just... Even Neymar, it's that Neymar and Mbappe are there. Because if you look at PSG's team, obviously Di Maria is a good player. Obviously Draxler's a good player. But the one you'd be thinking you need to stop is, um, is Mbappe. And so if you've got Mbappe, you could say to Matic and Herrera, you two need to shuffle across a bit and deal with this bloke. Whereas if you've got Neymar on the other side, you end up being like basically Bobby Charlton trying to brush his hair, where you're trying to cover too much area with too little, and there's nothing you can do about that. But if the danger man, the outstanding elite talent, is only one player, then you're in a much better position to try and do something about that. And one thing we've seen from Solskjaer is he alters what he does, the tactics that he uses, the personnel, depending on what the opposition have. So 
I'm sure there will be a defensive plan to try and counter PSG. But I think certainly in the first half an hour, particularly the aim will be to go forward and to try and get a lead. What's your take on Angel Di Maria, uh, Daniel, from a Manchester United perspective? Because it seems to me that he is a human being who's more suited to, say, the Parisian lifestyle, to the lifestyle of being a Paris Saint-Germain footballer, a.k.a. not having to try too hard every single week domestically. Is that too lazy uh, a thing to say about Di Maria? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, Di Maria is an elite-level player who's done it at Real Madrid, who's turned up and performed every week at Real Madrid, who's had to sacrifice a ridiculous amount and work ridiculously hard to get to where he is. I think there's a germ of truth in what you're saying, that he didn't want to be at United. He ended up at United because he didn't really have options. Madrid wanted rid of him because they wanted to buy Hammers, and there weren't that many other clubs who could afford his transfer fee and his wages. But even then... You've, he wouldn't be the first person that's gone to a club because they've had to go there, turned up at the club and thought, actually, this is pretty good. The problem is that he was at United at the wrong time. He was at United when Van Gaal was the manager. And Van Gaal, basically, he United played Leicester and they played half an hour of some of the best football I've seen in the post-Ferguson era. Then Raphael got sent, unfortunately, I think got sent off um, and the United collapsed and ended up getting beaten. And Van Gaal was spooked and never again did he pick an attacking team. So after that, he was trying to sneak Di Maria into the team up front in the same way he'd done in the World Cup with uh, Robin. Just right, well, you can run fast. We'll defend, in, we'll defend deep and in numbers and then we'll whack the ball up to you and you'll run after it. And Di Maria is not that kind of player. At his best, Di Maria is almost two players in one because he's so fit and so fast. He can play. He was playing for Madrid on the left side of a three in midfield, but then so he was so fit that he was also playing on the left wing at the same time. And there are very few players in world football that are able to do that. And um, Di Maria is an interesting and probably unique player. Um, the problem was that Van Gaal wasn't prepared to use that. And there was a story about a row where, uh, trading where in the end Di Maria said, well, why did you sign me? And that is a fair question. Even though Di Maria didn't want to be there, even though he could have tried harder when he was at United to make it work, United was deliberately set up to make it not possible for him to make it work. So I would say that there was wrong on both sides, but in the main, I'll blame Van Gaal for what happened with Di Maria, not Di Maria. Yeah, like Van Gaal is obviously a bit of a hard ass, and like uh, it's obviously the point I put to you is obviously way too harsh a criticism to put of Angel Di Maria, and I'd be interested to get your take on that, Philippe, because you look if you want to compare two managers at the opposite ends of the spectrum, I think you could definitely put Van Gaal at one side of the things, and then Thomas Tuchel at the other side of the things because of the way he deals with his players, and I think there's probably a comparison between Tuchel and Solskjaer in this respect as well. Like reading yeah. Simon Cooper's piece on ESPN, he says that he hugs Neymar, and that when the player isn't around, uh, I write in text, he says to tell him that I still believe in him and that I'm sad he isn't here. Uh, he's a man quite uh, in touch with his emotions, isn't he, uh, Philippe? Yes, he is. Sometimes a little bit too much. It <laughs> mm. <laughs> happened recently uh, in a game where uh, he was actually sent to the stands for remonstrating a little bit uh, too uh, heavily. Certainly a very different character from uh, Unai Emery, for example. And, and one of the things is that uh, he's, yes, uh, apparently been able to... Uh, to have a very positive influence on Neymar. The one thing uh, I've heard a lot, actually, uh, over the last few weeks is how Neymar is having a completely different attitude towards his, uh, his job as, as, as a footballer. And, you know, he sometimes took it a bit as between the job and the vacation at times. Uh, it seems he has changed a lot. And, and also the way that Di Maria has excelled uh, this season with two holes speaks a lot about his man management quality, uh, qualities and um, something which is reflected in the qu- 
quality of the performances of, of, of Argentinian player that we've seen uh, this season. And clearly he's got, he's got something here happening w- with this squad, which is, um, I mean, it's almost legendary how difficult it is to manage it because of the strong personalities uh, in the dressing room and the fact that those personalities have uh, managed to survive over a long period of time, uh, seeing a number of managers coming and going. Uh, and it's a bit of a, of a, of a poison challenge for that. But uh, yes, there is definitely, I mean, one of the most impressive, or more impressive, I would say, things that is brought to the club is certainly um, a better atmosphere, a better relationship with the players, which has shown for a while. But again, I'm sorry to come back to that, but which has shown for a while, but until the avalanche of, of misfortune that has come their way in the recent past. And also this other thing, which is the question mark, which everybody asks every time PSG attains this uh, stage in the Champions League. It is whether the league, uh, which is so weak, I'm sorry to say that, uh, does not really give you the best terrain on which to prepare uh, for clashes like the one um, tonight. And that you will find out exactly how good a job he's done tonight. He knows it, but unfortunately is going to this job with one hand tied behind his back. Yeah, I think everybody probably understands that a little bit. Certainly you would hope that the hierarchy of the club will when it comes to their decision-making at the end of the season. The other big story that's been going on at at Paris Saint-Germain is this potential return to football that we've heard muted about Arsene Wenger. Yeah. Is is there any truth in this? What do you think is going to happen here? in the PSG's choppy waters, if you excuse the metaphor. Uh, what is certain is that the position of the current sports director, Antero and Henrique, the man who brought shoe promoting to PSG, which is quite something, uh, is in doubt, to say the least. His position is, uh, has been weakened. And that because of that, obviously, and because also of um, information or perhaps uh, Suggestions which have been put out by some people close to Arsene Wenger, let's put it that way. Um, the old story that Wenger would actually uh, become the new sports director uh, of PSG is as we gain some strength. In fairness, there is nothing at the moment which uh, indicates that it will happen in the near future. I'm not saying it's never going to happen because the, you know, the club has always been quite close to Wenger. Even though, I must say, Imagine uh, Arsene Wenger, do you remember what he said about a sporting director at yeah. Arsenal <laughs> uh, accepting such a job? And uh, also, after what he said about financial doping, joining Paris Saint-Germain. That would be quite ironic, I think. Yeah, he's, he's a man who appreciates irony, though, Wenger, at least. Uh... Yes, 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 he's got actually a very large flat very close to the Parc des Princes. <laughs> well, there you go, it's all going to work out. Um, Philippe, great stuff. There's one last question I, I had for you. Daniel, it was about the performance of Ander Herrera. So much has been made of the improvement in the form of the strikers and the way that they're playing with a smile on their face and all that stuff that you know you want to do. And you, if uh, you are going to be successful, you kind of need to enjoy your job. It looks to me like Ander Herrera is starting to enjoy his job and perhaps begin to fulfil his potential. Yeah, I mean, the thing with him is he's another player. I mean, well, the same with every player who's been at United the last few years who was at United at the wrong time. Because um, he, when he was at Bilbao, he was number 10. And when he came to England, he realised that he wasn't going to get enough goals to play number 10 in a good team. So he ended up partly because of that and partly because he was badly managed, being turned into basically a snide mouser, like a guy who just runs about, throws himself around, kicks people and uh, gets in the way. 
Matt, if there's a good team on the opposite, if the opposition have a good player, well, you put Herrera on him because it's better to take Herrera out of the game along with the other good player that the opposition have. But he's actually got a lot more to his game than that. He's He sees the game really well. He's a good passer. He can get into the box. He can score. And we've seen that at various passages of play when managers have had faith in him. So although he's not of the standard of the best United midfield players, he has quite a lot of attributes as a general. And um, we're seeing that now where he's got a really good understanding of the game so that when he wins the ball deep, he looks to play a forward pass and he looks to play it quickly. And that's something that Matic does a lot less of. So the combination of him, Pogba, and those hit of Herrera, Pogba, and, um, and Matic, although it's lacking in quality of what you need to be able to control the game at the top level, the combination of qualities that those players have is quite useful. And um, Herrera, for sure, is seeing, like you're seeing what you'd expect to see in any player, when they know the manager has confidence in them and they know they're going to play in all the games, you start to see an improvement in what they do in those games. And he is, he's playing really well at the moment. I think that actually, you know, if we were to, if you were to have Maric at his very best for Chelsea and say him and Pogba combined with another person wasn't good enough to control a game in midfield, everybody would laugh at you. I think that it's actually reached a point maybe where, where we need to revisit what Maric could be if he was playing for a sustained period of time under a manager who gave him some confidence. Like, there's a possibility he's not completely shot, right? No, I don't, I don't think Matic is shot, but he's not someone I ever thought was a, a great player in the first place. The problem with Matic for me is that if you play in his position, you need to do one of two things. You either need to be someone like Michael Carrick, who can pass the ball early, quickly, over short and long distances off either foot and keep the game moving. He can't do that. Or you've got to be someone like Fernandinho who can speed the game up and cover a lot of ground and he doesn't do that either. And the thing about a player like Pogba is Pogba's obviously an amazing talent and a generational talent, but he's not a player who necessarily is going to give you control in a game. He's quite similar to Steven Gerrard in that aspect. He's a player who's going who's gonna to settle games with moments of brilliance, but he's not necessarily going to help you control them. And I would say that if I was looking at the United team and thinking in the summer, where would you want to strengthen this team to make it better? I, the first thing that I would be looking to do probably is to bring in a centre-back. But then after that, I'd be looking for at least one midfield player. And that midfield player for me would be a replacement for Matic or a replacement for Herrera. And if I bought a replacement for Herrera, I'd put Herrera in Matic's position because Herrera has that ability to get around the pitch and he's just also a much better passer than Matic. Matic yeah. has been better under Solskjaer in that he's passing the ball forward and he's moving more. But I don't think we're ever going to see him be the standard of player that you would need to be able to control the game against a proper team. All right. Good stuff, Daniel. Enjoy the game tonight. Thanks a million. See you again, guys. Daniel Harris giving us some thoughts ahead of uh, Man United and Paris Saint-Germain, which obviously kicks off at 8 o'clock tonight. And you'll hear live updates across the course of the show on uh, News Talk this evening from 7 o'clock with Joe and the lads. Now... It was just like, um, in case anybody thought is uh, Thomas Tuchel an absolute nutcase, well, uh, he is a nutcase, uh, according to that piece I mentioned there by Simon Cooper in ESPN. Uh, apparently, uh, so Tuchel, you can kind of tell by him on the sideline, he's an extremely thin man, he's 45 years old, and he's so crazy that he once boasted of having once spent four weeks in Italy without touching either pasta or pizza. The real nutcase are uh, Thomas Tuchel. That's just joylessness. Joylessness. He's uh, like the, he's obviously kind of implemented this. Like it's really weird that the French sporting culture isn't it? I thought it was just a French rugby culture. Uh, but he says the first time his uh, PSG side took the bus to an away game, uh, Marco Verratti requested a Coca Cola. 
Horror of horrors, he discovered that Tuchel had banned all soft drinks and sandwiches. Verratti quickly got the message. Like, this is only a couple of years ago. Yeah. Or this is like this year. Yeah. This is, like, this is... Uh, no Coke. Uh, no Coca-Cola, no sandwiches for a professional football player. Uh, shock horror. All right. This Valentine's Day, we're encouraging you to show some heart by donating to the Irish Heart Foundation. You can donate right now at irishheart.ie forward slash donate. You may also have heard it mentioned over the past month that we organised our own charity match here at Off The Ball for the Irish Heart Foundation. We pitted some legends and listeners against the rest of Team OTB and the results were glorious. Have a look. Your highlights, Darren? Your great saves in the first half? They were there, were they? No, they got cut. Yeah, I'm pretty disappointed with that. I mean, I didn't Bribes do a whole lot. But I, uh, I got John Giles to tell me at halftime, you weren't bad in the first half, Keeper, and it was probably the highlight of my life. Sadly. There you go, there you go. Um, he did give praise to somebody else. He gave praise to Nathan. On air as well. I oh, know you weren't too bad. And Nathan was like, I'm taking that. <laughs> Nathan was rubbish. Was he? Yeah. All right, okay. Well, uh, I think John just realised he had to talk to him every Thursday, so it would be easier to say, yeah, you weren't bad, Nathan. That's the first time in his life that John has ever pulled punches. So. Yeah, that's great management from John. Just just keep him happy. Yeah, it's true. Tell it's him true. what he needs to hear. Playing the long game there. Besides the ego. Where are we starting with? Uh, we start with Manchester United, Jaron. They have a near fully fit squad to choose from for the visit of Paris Saint-Germain to Old Trafford, Matteo Darmian and Antonio Valencia, the only players ruled out of the first leg of their Champions League last 16 tie. Victor Lindelof, who missed the 3-0 win against Fulham in the Premier League with a knock, is back in contention, having trained with the squad yesterday. Marcus Rashford, who was rested due to a dead leg, also set to feature. Now, PSG have some injury concerns of their own, but Ole Gunnar Solskjaer believes that makes life a little tougher for United. Of course, any team that have uh, are missing players like Neymar, Cavani, uh, Munier will will feel the effect. But that'll give any of the other players a chance. So for me, uh, it makes it maybe more unpredictable for us who they're going to play. Because when when you when you've seen um, that front three over the whole season, you know what what to expect. Uh, so this time around. We're guessing a little bit how they're going to come, but we've uh, we've got a good guesstimate on how they're uh, approaching this game. Now, Newcastle conceded at the death as they dropped two points in the Premier League last night. Willie Bolly scored a dramatic 95th-minute equaliser as Wolves denied the Magpies what would have been a crucial win. Well, the Derby coach Frank Lampard has distanced himself from a potential return to Chelsea. The pressure continues to mount on Blues boss Mauricio Sarri. He is facing the sack following a poor first season at Stamford Bridge. Their misery further compounded over the weekend when his side endured their heaviest defeat for 28 years, a 6-0 hammering at the hands of Manchester City. That led to Lampard, who is Chelsea's record goal scorer after a glittering 13-year spell at Stamford Bridge, being installed as the bookies' favourite for the job. Lampard, though, quick to say that's not the case. 
bookmakers are not always right for starters. I, w- I would never get excited about that. Um, but no, I, I think it's uh, certainly a club I respect uh, and a manager that I respect. Um, so it wouldn't make me smile or anything different because my job is here. Um, and I'm working very hard and my, my whole thoughts are with Ipswich Town away on Wednesday and then travelling down to Brighton in the FA Cup at the weekend. So uh, I obviously follow Chelsea, but no, I have huge respect for them and uh, I hope to see them um, put some form together and turn those results around. It is mad that he's their record goal scorer from midfield. You think about it, it's insane. It's like a level of greatness that you're never going to see again from a midfield player at a Premier League club at that. Mm. He was there as well for the dark days too, when they were relatively poor. I mean, they were mediocre, yeah. yeah like mediocre. He, obviously, he obviously went to a completely different level uh, once things started to get pretty good. He had pretty good players around him. He, I think he's going to be a good Chelsea manager at some point. Yeah, he probably... like. Is it, is it just a really... like the, Is the Solskjaer template just such an easy one now for anybody to follow without and so for somebody to rush into without realising yeah, what Chelsea actually is. Well, the Solskjaer template is like spend three years at the club after you retire as the reserve team coach, work with all the young players at the club, go away, fail, uh, go away somewhere else, sorry, go away, succeed, go somewhere else, fail, go back, succeed again. So like it's not really a, it's not, there's no like for like that you can do with anybody else. Solskjaer's got his failure out of the way. Okay, put it more simplistically. Is taking the Chelsea job at an early stage in your career just an idiotic move? Yeah, and he doesn't have the temperament for it yet because he showed during that whole leads the back. And I thought he handled that really badly. I mean, for a while it looked like they were the guys who were wrong. They could feel aggrieved. But Lampard just came out and he just made it worse. He made by it whining. Yeah, by whining. That's not exactly like what the, you need as a Premier League manager. Whine, 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 whine. But I disagree with oh, the FA, they've given us fixtures. Oh, I can't believe we had to play an away game after we played the Tuesday game. Oh, that referee, what a dickhead. Like, come on. He's covered himself in glory. Like, I, I just don't think... I wouldn't put him in on a crisis, certainly. No, but I think anybody who comes in now, it's like, just get to the end of the season. Um, it's not the worst time to come in right now because you get the end of the season to work with the players and see who gives a, who cares. You also get the off season to root them out and to influence however that transfer committee stuff works at Chelsea and to prevent them selling some of those young players that they keep just flogging. Also, we don't do we know yet what sort of man manager Frank Lampard is. Like it's very evident that Poch- that uh, Solskjaer kind of is in the more Pochettino mold of a man manager. And uh, the Thomas Tuchel, as we were speaking about, element of a man manager, where like he's got a deep connection with his players and he enjoys that. Like, is that what is required now, at Chelsea, or is it tough love? I think it's probably the former. I think it is probably the Solskjaer type, and I'm not sure if Frank Lampard actually has it. I think Frank Lampard's actually a bit of a tough cookie. Like, he's the Harry Redknapp school of thought here. He is like he is as old school as any new retiree can be. Uh, I, I, think. I keep in, in, on, in, ter- in terms of I keep banging on about the story that he tells about like him being naked in the shower and Mourinho walking in and going grabbing him by the face, going, "You're going to be the best player in the world." And he's like, "No, what are you talking about? You're going to be the best player in the world." And that was the thing that inspired him to go on and be like one of the best players in the world. You know, I, think, I don't know. And what does that have to do with his man management? <laughs> yeah. He enjoyed being told that he was great as opposed to the tough love of Harry Redknapp. I think Solskjaer is working it's pretty as well, tough though. if your face being grabbed in the shower. Yeah, by Mourinho. I think Solskjaer works as well because a lot of those players there, not a huge spine of the team, but the likes of Pogba, Rashford, Jesse Lingard, Phil Jones, they would have looked up to him and he's a guy they would have admired and worked with. as a player and worked with. And, you know, as United fans, they would have 
really relish the opportunity not to disappoint him. It was all about not disappointing someone you admired. I'm not sure Chelsea would have that spine of players who would have uh, idolised Lampard in the same way. Well, they probably do have a bunch of those kids who are just as good as some of the players who are playing in the first team at the moment. Or not playing, as it were, not performing. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I don't know. Look, it wouldn't be the worst. he's, He's at least gone and... He's putting some time in at Derby, and I wouldn't be terribly surprised if it happens in the summer. You would not be at all surprised. Say, so, okay, you've cut your teeth, well done, let's go. Frank gets promoted with Derby. Let's go. Mm. <laughs> he's an ex caretaker manager. Everyone at Chelsea's been a caretaker manager for the last decade. See, I, that, we were talking about this earlier on, though. Like, if you're Abramovich and you know Lampard as well as you know him, and you love him because of what he delivered for the club, and he comes to the club. You can't just burn him out the way you can Scolari or uh, AVB yes, or you can. Sorry, oh, definitely or, can. Yes, you can. You can't. Your, your name is Roman Abramovich. You can do whatever the hell you want. Yeah, you they've, you, they've never shown like, any signs of honour in any of their dealings with managers. Well, no, 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 no. He got, um, he, he bought Jose, uh, I, think, I think Jose bumped into him and admired his, um, his Lambo or his Ferrari and Abramovich got him one after he'd sacked him. That was how they became friends again. Well, that's the thing. But my Ferrari. It's like, yeah, I look, you can have a Ferrari. No, no, not my one. I'll get you the same one. You can stay mates and he'll still assassinate you. Like, he, he's just, uh, he's still kind of like uh, somebody who will, uh, in a managerial sense. Yeah, yeah, I was hoping you'd clear that up, on. Like, he, uh, Jose Mourinho is still alive, guys, just to let you know. Uh, he will uh, co- completely get rid of you from the club, even if he kind of likes you. Even if he thinks that you're going to be future mates. Even yeah. if he thinks he's going to buy you a Ferrari one day. There's a great Mourinho uh, interview from Flash Zone a few years ago. It's like 2015, where he's talking about it was when he was struggling at Chelsea, things weren't going well, and he basically challenged the players to dig in and do something, because he said, I'll be the fall guy here, basically, everyone will blame me, but there are people at this club, not just players, but above, who need to look at it and assume some responsibility. It's only about 40 seconds long, but it's really telling in that he basically predicted that this is going to be a cycle for Chelsea, where every few years, the players will just decide that they've had enough of this voice, and they know that if they go through a certain course of actions where they stop playing for that person, they can get rid of him. And looks like Sarri's probably reached that stage already. Pretty much. Leinster say there's nothing they could have done to prevent Sean O'Brien from leaving the province. The 32-year-old's move to London Irish was confirmed yesterday. The Ireland International has agreed a three-year contract worth a reported 500 grand a year. Senior coach Stuart Lancaster conceded it was almost out of their hands as soon as the national contract wasn't offered by the IRFU. O'Brien got what was described as a fantastic offer from England. The curtain will come down on the Tullow Tanks career after the Rugby World Cup. And his former teammate Brian O'Driscoll doesn't think the IRFU will deviate from their policy that excludes overseas players from selection. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. You know, you're depends on on what Andy Farrell has kind of been told or what his policy is, whether he continues with that Smith Nusafora regime or or not. The the reality is though that we've got very few scenarios where similar to the Johnny Sexton case, mm-hmm. where you know he was far and away the best option. Whereas Sean O'Brien, even the peak of his powers, Sean O'Brien of two years ago, yes, he's definitely better than the other two sevens, or, or including Jordy Murphy as well, but they're not a million miles behind him. Yeah. Whereas Sexton to the next player, it was, a, it was quite the gulf with respect to those other players. Such was, was Johnny's quality. So I think we're unlikely to find ourselves in that predicament again. And so I think players know that if they do go overseas, is you know, the, the high, it's highly likely that they're not going to be selected nationally. 
Now, horse racing is set to resume in the UK over the next few days after a six-day shutdown over equine flu fears. The British Horse Racing Authority say strict biosecurity measures will remain in place. Racing cancelled last Thursday after the highly contagious airborne virus was identified in six already vaccinated horses. In tennis, the world number one Naomi Osaka has dumped her coach Sasha Bayan. The split comes as a shock as Osaka won a second consecutive Grand Slam at the Australian Open just a few weeks ago. No reasons were given for the split. She tweeted to say, hey everyone, I will no longer be working together with Sasha. I thank him for his work and wish him all the very best in the future. Now that is cold. 14,000 likes. Who likes that like? Well, he liked it. Right. Um, the Florida-based tennis star enjoyed a remarkable rise up the ranks, uh, first linking up a buy-in in the 2017 off-season. She climbed from 72nd in the world to reach the top five. Then she won her first Grand Slam title. She claimed the world number one spot after her latest success in Melbourne. Now, buy-in previously worked with uh, Serena Williams, Caroline Wozniacki, Sloane Stevens, and Victoria Azarenka. He was named the WTA Coach of the Year in 2018, and he responded to Osaka's tweet by saying this... Thank you, Naomi. I wish you nothing but the best as well. What a ride that was. Thank you for letting me be part of this. Uh, um, that's like the like kind of. Uh, first of all, that's you can't really read too much into how nice they're being to one another. There, there is clearly sort of a, a frostiness because of this. I, I, I would imagine so. And now they're just trying to get some one-upmanship in terms of who's going to be the, the nicer on Twitter. Yeah, I watched a video of her talking about him, and um, it was one of these. The secret to Osaka's success is this guy. And um, she was talking and basically saying, yeah, he's a really good coach. He tells you the stuff you don't want to know and you don't want to hear. And he can be really, really difficult and really, really hard. And I got the sense that while she was saying it in a positive manner, she wasn't saying positive things. Mm. So I think he probably got the best out of her. But I, maybe his methods or that environment is draining on an Do athlete. coaches get a percentage? Are they like, you know, jockeys? Do they get a percentage of the winnings or, or caddies? Or is it like a strict... salary? Is it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I would have, I would have naturally thought it was salary. I, I couldn't tell you. It, do, it does have kind of like the bang of uh, a Love Island contestant breaking up with another Love Island contestant via Instagram story there. It's usually not that civil on Love Island. At least there was a little bit of response and it all looks relatively civil. But, I mean, outside of the island, when they've got to keep their uh, persona Same. up or, you know, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, we're, gonna, we're, we're still going to be mates. That's, uh, that's what I'm hearing here. Sasha Bajin likes to um, have, get pictured with his top off. I was like, who is this guy? Quick Google image search. All right. There's a lot of pecs on show. I've got one more story. I'll save you from yourself, Chair. Spurs fans can't believe it that the club have scrapped plans for a VIP cheese room at their new stadium. Tottenham Zoo one billion pound stadium has been hit by a number of delays, but the prospect of a cheese room appears to be too good at to be true. When they detail Out plans... I know, yeah, look, I'm trying to improvise here. Plans for the exclusive H-Club. They said fans could select their own specially sourced half-time cheeses. The fee for joining H-Club is 15 grand and members can only go in pairs. So you have to buy two tickets to even get in. The club say there were plans to have cheese, but that there would never be a specific room for the cheese. Reaction online has been mixed. Some fans are going, Imantel, mental. The pronunciation of cheeses here is the best part. Others don't give a damn. <laughs> the cheese story may have had more holes in it than a slice of Swiss, but the stadium will have the longest bar in the UK, 86.8 metres long, and the premium seats will have USB ports that will also be heated, not the ports, the actual seats, and the new White Hart Lane will include the world's first stadium microbrewery, so it's not all bad news. That's uh, Everything that's wrong with football is right there. The fact that we can't have a cheese museum in a football stadium is what's wrong with football. How dare they get rid of that fantastic idea? At least your phone won't die because they have a USB port in your seat. So you don't even have to watch the match. You can just look at your phone. No 
wonder it's yeah. no wonder it's taken six years to actually get into the stadium. Uh, Darren, good stuff. Thanks very much for that. Uh, Mike Quirk was on last night with Joe talking about the impact that Peter Keane has made in Kerry. Have a look. He seems to kind of keep himself to himself a lot of the time. Um, he likes to throw out a lot of these kind of old old Pishog saying a little bit like Jack O'Connor and all these South Kerry managers seem to have the same kind of uh, graph for those kind of things. But uh, he, he doesn't really know, as far as I'm aware, he doesn't seem to crave that that you need to, you know, accept that I'm the boss and I'm the gaffer and I'm, I'm the guy with all the great ideas. I think he was very open and willing and, and, and wanted to get the likes of Donny Buckley and surround himself with really good people and good expertise mm. as opposed to maybe someone who wanted to, to, to take that kind of limelight. Because the big thing with Donny Buckley is like Donny Buckley's getting a lot of credit for some of the stuff that he doesn't do at all. While Donny is really, really good at what he does, Donny's getting credit for everything just because he's in the setup. And and for another manager, somebody there that's maybe you know challenging him or, or, or taking that kind of you know aura of 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 brilliance from mm. from the manager wouldn't really be accepted. But he, I think he he you know that was a big thing for him to get Donny involved and and to make sure that everybody knows this. And I got Tommy Griffin, I got these guys, and and it's a kind of a team effort as opposed to you know one guy on his own and. Uh, I think he's. He, I, I think from from listening to him, I think he had a rocky start in terms of the way, you know, they, and it's been well publicised yeah. the way they can contacted or didn't yeah. contact guys that should have been should have been contacted, uh, and I think they've held their hands up and said, look, yeah, we we'd probably do it differently, but. You know, from 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 what you can get now in three games in the league, I mean, Kerry supporters could not be absolutely couldn't be in any way happier with with what they've seen from from Peter Keane's team. Yeah, they love Peter Keane. We did chat before the games started that oh, this hasn't you know this is there's a bit of and there was that um, Tony Lean uh, press conference stuff, and then no one cares. They win three games, it's all over. Yeah, nothing matters when you're winning games, I guess. And I I just can't get over how beloved he is already. And successful they are. You're going to win the All Ireland. Well, that's not getting carried away. What, what was the? What did I say in 2021? That's Shouldn't you get carried away? Isn't that the whole point of being a like? Oh, geez, you're not allowed to get carried away with the league. How dare anybody get carried away with the league? Uh, we should have a quick chat about this because um, Owen is heading off for uh, a ride in um, a very fast car with Craig Breen. Yes, I'm very excited about this. V- video to come ah! Is there going to be a camera on your face? I presume so. You oh, know. Please make sure there's a camera on your face. Yeah. I'm I'm known around the world as a massive petrol head, so looking forward the to the terror in your eyes. Oh, I actually, it would actually be the opposite. I, I quite enjoy that sort of thrill. We'll Except, see. Uh, well, uh, unless it's life threatening. We'll see. Yeah, I like. I, I don't know. We'll uh, we, we'll see how my reaction is. We had um, Travis Tiger on the show. The first part of this interview went out last week. There's a full 40 minute version of this available for you to watch on YouTube if um, you're interested in anti-doping generally. Obviously, Travis Tiger was uh, one of the central characters involved in the end of the Lance Armstrong facade and the, the Armstrong lie. He's the CEO of the US Anti-Doping Agency. But there's loads of other interesting aspects to um, what USADA are doing and their relationship with um, anti-doping in America and the role that they play for uh, big boxing fights and all that kind of stuff as well. So in the background of this, there's also... Um, stuff coming out from Floyd Landis. He is not happy with USADA and he's not happy with Travis Tigert. Yeah, no, I don't think they have a fantastic relationship, to be quite honest with you. It's the, the piece we're about to play kind of gets into the idea of uh, his relationship and USADA's relationship with the likes of Lance and with the likes of Landis. And of course, uh, Landis's 
uh, testimony, his uh, whistleblowing was a key component. It was kind of like the Jenga piece that was pulled out and the, the, whole, the whole tower started to fall. And uh, Landis really isn't happy with how goalposts were shifted in terms of testing, in terms of uh, criteria for samples in the past, that USAD uh, went uh, above and beyond to actually nail this guy and to nail somebody. And you know, ultimately, he was uh, a doper. And there's kind of a moral grey area here as to should you be going out of your way and be as ruthless as possible to pop all the dopers you possibly can. All right, so let's pick it up here. This is... Um uh, Travis Tiger talking about his role in the US Postal case, his relationship with Armstrong and his thoughts on Floyd Landis. Have a look. Hey, Travis, you've had a, a very interesting career in terms of dealing with cheaters and chasing up cheaters and you talk about the cheaters here in the current situation that when they potentially reach justice, I often wonder what you would do in that situation. Would you be open to the idea of cheaters coming on board to try and help the quest for clean sport a little bit more because after all they have been inside the camp of one of the most high-powered state-sponsored doping regimes allegedly that we've ever seen. They know a thing or two on how to cheat. They could be of help, surely. Without question. And, and our, our approach um, you know, the, the U.S. Sur- Postal Services case, our cycling investigation here in the U.S., mm. that, that was the exact strategy we used from an investigative standpoint was to give every athlete, and, and make no mistake, we gave even Lance Armstrong the opportunity to come in, to sit down, to be truthful, because the athletes themselves, to some extent, are being abused. Can you imagine being an athlete in Russia and to some extent in the in the peloton in the late 90s where the rules were you had to cheat to be effective and that the those in the system the the team doctors the coaches um the sport organizations they turned a blind eye to it that's not much of a choice for athletes we saw that in our cycling investigation T- today with the russia situation look it's a state they're using these athletes and abusing these athletes by requiring them to take these drugs in order to represent their country and go from a seventh place finish in 2010 to a first place finish in, in, in Sochi. That's all for that national pride and that national power. So, so they're just being, you know, abused as well. So absolutely, we were willing to give, in our case, and would in this one, an opportunity for those on, in the trenches who are being preyed upon by others to, to come forward, be truthful, give us whatever evidence you have, and let's clean up this system so that we know athletes in the future aren't going to be subjected to the kind of abuse or lack of choice that we saw in cycling, for example, and that clean athletes actually can have an opportunity to compete and win the right way. Sure, and like the U.S. Postal example is a fantastic one because I guess from your standpoint now, you can tell us what actually happens after we find out who the bad guys are and after we find out what sort of justice can be meted out. Like, let's take Lance Armstrong, for example, and obviously there's a fascination around it, but there's a practicality to talking about this in this context as well, Travis, as you'll appreciate. So could I just ask first up, when was the last time you spoke to Lance Armstrong? Oh, it's been, I don't know, a few... Um Probably, probably a few months. You know, maybe back March, April time period, if I, if memory serves me. Right. And what was the nature of the discussion? Was it to do with the idea of him perhaps helping out with the the fight for clean sport, or was it a catch up, or, or or what? What was the nature? Yeah, it was just you know just just about what the the the, the terms of the sanction, what it what it means, what events he may or may not be able to to compete against or be a part of. Um, and and look, we're we're always hopeful. That whether it's him or anyone else who's been, you know, caught and sanctioned, that they come forward and are truthful and, and try to right their wrongs. 
and, you know, apologize to the people that they've harmed in the way and do everything within their authority going forward to, you know, not continue to make excuses, but accept responsibility and understand the rules are the rules and ought to be applied fairly and evenly, but, yeah. but try to help the system moving forward in, in any way that they possibly can and, and truly be sorry for, you know, not just being caught and sanctioned, but, but sorry for the, the action and, and, and try to make the system better so that athletes today actually have a choice not just to join the dopers, even if they think the entire culture is doping, but to do what takes a little courage mm. at the time and, and some bravery. And you look at Yulia by, uh, Stepanov and Vitaly Stepanov, you know, that's what they did. They do you said think Lance Armstrong has that same potential? Yeah, I, I, think every, I think every athlete that's ever, you know, gone through um, that situation has that same potential. Now, that may not mean there's a reduction in sanction. You know, that opportunity was given back in the summer of 2012 and several months after that as well. But um, so that's a different question. But but certainly in the eyes of, you know, forgiveness and redemption and being accepted back into the sporting community, not necessarily competing because the sanction is the sanction. Um, you know, we, we wish the best for, for every athlete that finds themselves in that situation. And we always encourage athletes to, you know, take responsibility, try to right the wrongs that were committed and, and move forward in a productive way so that clean athletes of this generation and future generations can, you know, have, have real choice yeah. uh, when it comes time to competing the right way. But it must be a, a tricky one, though, when you think about it. I'm sure you've thought about it quite a lot. If Lance Armstrong came to you in the morning and says, listen, Travis, I want to help out with the fight for clean sport. Do you believe him? I mean, Betsy Andreu described him as a remorseless, pathological liar. Look, I, I think there's a, a long way from, um, you know, being able to embrace, um, given where it's at, and, and, and it will take a lot. But I'm, but, I'm, but I'm overly hopeful, you know, that everyone that finds themselves in that situation can, can, can come to terms with, the, with what's occurred um, and, and try to move forward for the good. I, I see the, the good in everyone, and, Look, I would like nothing better than, um, you know, an athlete, whether it's Lance Armstrong or any other that's been caught um, doping and cheating at the levels that they were to, to, to come forward and, and actually, you know, try to right the wrongs in a real way and, and move forward that's productive for not only themselves, I think. Um, that's not my call, but I certainly see it that way, but, but for the sport in general. When you look back on your work, particularly in the U.S. Postal case, do you think that there was a certain aggression there, a robust nature to your investigation that probably was required at the time? Look, we just we just did our job. <laughs> you know, we, we took an oath to apply the facts um, to the rules, to search for the truth. And, and that's absolutely what we did in that case. And it's what we do and had done prior to that, you know, whether it was Balco, Dylan Mary Jones or mm. Tim Montgomery or, you know, some some of the global icons who cheated made the unfortunate decision to to break the rules at that time. I mean, that's our job, right, is to sure. pursue the evidence to exonerate the innocent just as as hard as we do to convict the guilty. And and look, th this case, once the floodgates opened um, and the first few witnesses came forward, you know, the, the truth was overwhelming and it you know, frankly, you know, was was like a tidal wave of truth. And and we simply applied that those facts to to the rules and came out where we did and and made, you know, mistake, as I mentioned earlier, we gave, you know, Armstrong the opportunity to come in and, 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 and face the truth also and be part of the opportunity to clean up the Peloton. And, and I think 
there was a missed opportunity there for the effort, quite frankly. While a lot of good, I think, came from the investigation, the CERC was established, a new president um, came in on a clean sport platform, the Independent Cycling Foundation to separate the Fox Guard and the Hen House was set up. Um, you know, a lot more could have happened, I think, earlier in the event that, that Armstrong would have chosen to, to take our offer and come in and, and be part of the solution. And, of course, I'm, I'm sorry that he didn't do that. Yeah, I'm sure. And I'm sure it was a particularly difficult situation. It's just really interesting when you read about some of the other writers. And you talk about the flood of information. I think, like, we'd all uh, agree that Floyd Landis and his admissions were one of those moments that created this, this flood moment. And it, it's really interesting reading some of Floyd Landis, like speaking uh, to Paul Kimmage last year. Um, like, he, he says... Uh, he still resents USADA for some of the things that they did. He, he talks about uh, the 2006 and the A sample and the B sample. And he's, he talks about this B sample, which was negative at the UCLA lab, and they just re retroactively changed the positive criteria. You can't do that, and that just made me want to fight more. In hindsight, I should have stepped back and said, this isn't really worth it because I'm effed anyway, but I had to fight. Uh, it kept me alive. Is that true, Travis? Listen, I mean, he fought. There's no doubt about that. But but no, look, the, he had an 11 to 1 TE ratio and a positive CIR that would have been positive, um, you, you know, was was positive in that that laboratory, as was the 11 to 1. So, so there look, was no I, retroactive think, changing of the criteria? No, no. Okay. And, and, and all of so that. That's not the truth. Yeah, you know, yeah I, I'm not sure what he's referring to there. But what I can tell you is there was <laughs> two separate hearings. I think the first hearing was about 11 days, you know, dozens of witnesses, laboratory, legal experts, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the lengthiest live hearing in front of independent judges that we've ever had. It was all streamed on the Internet. Media was present during the room, which is totally fine. And, and we welcomed that because it was an opportunity to let the truth be known. Um, they then and they and that, you know, found him to have committed the violation. They then appealed that decision. But look, what, what's unfortunate is, again, a lot more good could have been done is when the positive test and the doping was first revealed, if, if he would have come forward. And, and look, I understand that he's upset and resentful. You know, when you get caught doing something and are held accountable, yeah, you it's not, it's not uh, you know, a pleasant day necessarily. You lose a lot, but yeah. let's, let's make no mistake, that comes back to the decision that those athletes make to begin with to cheat sport. And they went and, and let's, you know, the, the Peloton went to great lengths at that time, particularly the postal services to use drugs, blood transfusions, um, a sophisticated network to avoid testing, to ensure they tested negative at every turn. Um, so it's a little hard now to say, well, I shouldn't be held accountable when they knew it was against the rules. They, they took a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of money um, to try to break the rules, and and then the, they got caught. I mean, it's it's really as simple as that. I think. Yeah. Certain like, times. Like I'm not. I'm not. I'm not justifying at all what uh, Floyd Landis said. I mean, like he he is ultimately a cheater. It's just very interesting. I find looking at the idea that he was broke and he he wanted to fight this, and he, he like makes the point that you guys weren't even trying to catch people for the things that we were doing. He says, so I'm going to fight, and I'm going to fight like nobody has ever fought. Uh, he says he wasn't suicidal, but he didn't really care if he lived. I mean, he went to extraordinary lengths because he felt that USADA had shifted the goalpost dramatically to try and catch him out. And do you know what, Travis? Maybe that is the way to go. Maybe that is how you, you catch cheaters. I'm not sure because the anti-doping process sometimes kind of falls through some of these loopholes. Yeah, listen, I, I, you know, I, I, I haven't read what you're referring to that Floyd said. What I can tell you is our job was nothing more ever than a search for the truth. And, you know, 
I, I would encourage every athlete if they find themselves in that situation, you know, don't don't lie and don't you know deny, but and and you know go on a a public tour raising money from folks supporting what you know to be a lie and not the truth. But sit down and if you think there's a place where the goalposts are being moved, we can talk through that and show you that that's not the case. We we have no interest in that. Our our job is to simply what are the rules. And are we going to enforce the rules to protect clean athletes? Um, and, 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 and that's the decision I would hope any athlete that ultimately does cheat, that gets caught, would come in and, and sit down and do that. But, but frankly, I would hope athletes stand up before they decide to cheat. And, sure. and that takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery. Few athletes have done it. We saw Julius Stepanov do it. Um, and that's what I would encourage athletes, you know, back during the, the dark days of the Peloton, as well as any athlete today that might find themselves in that situation, there there are organizations out there, and, and and we're not perfect, no doubt about that. We're striving every day to be the best we possibly can be, but we're 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 pushing hard to give athletes an independent opportunity when they're confronted with a dangerous situation, whether it's doping or otherwise, to come forward and 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 have someone that supports them. Get yeah. to the bottom of it and protect their right to equal play and fair play. Of course. Like, do you think cycling is a much cleaner sport than it was during the U.S. postal days? Because uh, it seems that, like, I, I don't know what what Floyd or Lance are thinking, but I'm sure they're thinking to themselves, "Well, cycling is just as dirty now as it was back then, and we were the guys who got caught, and we got caught spectacularly." Yeah. Look, I, I think it's. I, I think system changes have happened, right? I mean, I mentioned the new president, the Independent Cycling Foundation, the CERC. You know, we pushed the CERC to have um, complete amnesty for athletes that came in. You know, was the entire dirty peloton at that time exposed and held accountable? I don't, I don't, no, nobody thinks so. Is the peloton I, just as dirty now, uh, in your view? No, listen, I, I think, I think the bias has changed because of those system changes, because of the deterrent value that's been shown through organizations willing to enforce the rules no matter so how it, big it is cleaner you think athlete. I, I think the bias has absolutely changed okay in favor of clean athletes i think you can i think you can win today now does that mean it's athletes aren't trying to gain an advantage absolutely not i mean i think that's human nature that's the difficulty of the fight we're in but i, I think athletes now know that they can win the right way and that if they see a peloton that's becoming dirty they have outlets to go to to ensure that they're right to compete clean as being upheld. Why, why has that happened? Why is it easier for a clean athlete to win now? Do you think that your investigation has such a lasting impact in the peloton that attitudes have changed? Because to me, it seems the incentive is still there, that there still isn't a huge amount of proof that testing is actually working. And therefore, if there's a chance you might get away with it, you're probably going to do it at, at those high stakes, no? Well, you should you should look at the evidence from our reasoned decision um, that was published in 20. 12, and you can see the affidavits by all the writers and, and even Armstrong's own um, Oprah interview. He acknowledged that the athlete biological passport that was implemented for UCI pro peloton athletes wasn't Im implemented until about 2007, 2008, if memory serves me. But once that was put in place, so the testing, once independent organizations came in, NATOs like us, like others around the world, to a certain extent, the World Anti-Doping Agency, we've talked about some of their you know, challenges at this moment, but, but make no mistake, since the dark days of the Peloton in the late 90s, when UCI was running it under their rules, it's an entirely different situation. And the likelihood 
of of winning clean, I think as high as it's ever been. The tests are way better than they've ever been. And even in the rider's own admission, um, the athlete biological passport has created an environment where, you know, the hardcore game-changing doping of the past, the blood transfusions that a few athletes at the time had access to, as the evidence in the Bruneo recent decision will show you, mm. um, is, is I think is I think is 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 gone now. Yeah, the, we've got to be vigilant to, to maintain it. Um, but I think the the system, the the culture has shifted dramatically since since those days. But the, and, the, and the in Brunel, part because you have independent groups who are committed to to fixing it and not sort of the fox guard in the hen house. I mean, remember Armstrong had a positive test in 1999. Um, the whole thing could have stopped then, but the UCI found an excuse for him to, sure. to walk around it like that 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 was that, like obviously that was a, a pretty spectacular failing on the, on the sports part at the time like the, the brunel one i'm glad you brought it up it's a really interesting one because uh, especially what you said afterwards you said it's a, another powerful example that playing by the rules matters and doping is never justified and always inexcusable which is why personally i have the, this uh, this cynicism about the tour de france because of the former dopers that are still riding in the tour and because of the former dopers that are still involved in teams and team management and things like that should they not all just be gotten rid of if they really wanted to change the the, the view and uh, the, the the culture in the tour de france perhaps look we, it, it goes back to what i said earlier about the the day of disappointment when armstrong instead of coming in and sitting down and and using his influence within the sport to help set it on an entirely new platform, you know, decided to, to contest and sue and all that sort of stuff, try to take us down. Um, I, I think, yeah, we, we pushed not only through our investigation, but then also in our interactions with the CERC, the Cycling Independent, um, you know, investigation to, to give the riders immunity, amnesty, if you want to call it that, so that they all can come in. And we can clean out the system, the doctors, the t team directors, the team owners, anyone in the sport who, who knew or was complicit in allowing this culture to exist. Because if we didn't dismantle the system, just athletes would continue to come into it. And the culture, the system would put a lot of pressure would, for them to dope, would turn a blind eye when they did dope, like mm. we saw in 99 with the Armstrong positive test. And, and so that was always our goal. And, and look, I don't that that wasn't achieved um, in the in the fullest for reasons beyond our control. Unfortunately, we would have loved for that to absolutely have happened. Does that mean it's like it was in the nineties? I, I think I think not. Does yeah. it mean we have to continue to give clean athletes support and a system that is going to have their back? A absolutely, it's too important to to go the other way. So, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am.